Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. So welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week, digging into more coronavirus facts. But before I do that, I want to clarify the discussion we had regarding how our immune system impacts, is impact, I should say, by chronic pain. So there's a lot of discussion that often happens that patients with chronic pain are immunosuppressed. And is that true or not? What's interesting is that it really depends on how you look at this. So when a physician or healthcare provider thinks of immunosuppression, they're thinking of conditions that are often caused by an autoimmune process. And common conditions that we would see that have a autoimmune process would be things like inflammatory bowel disease. So things like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Things like inflammatory arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis and uh, lupus would be another thing. So chronic pain as a disease is not caused by an autoimmune process. The challenge for these patients who do have an autoimmune process is that in order to dial down their immune response, they have to go on medications that suppress their immune system. And that's what increases their risk of uh, being more vulnerable to viruses and bacteria, especially those that our immune system has never seen. The challenge with this novel coronavirus is that it is a new virus. So there's lots of terminology that gets bantered around a bit, you know, immunocompromise, immunosuppression, and autoimmune disease. So let's just try and look at it from a different perspective. Are patients who live with chronic pain more immune susceptible? And what I mean by that is that, yeah, their immune systems are more challenged because their body is in a constant state of alarm. So when we think about the normal physiological response our body has to a threat is that we need to send out that alarm chemistry. So that alarm chemistry is actually made in our adrenals, and our adrenals sit over our kidneys. So that alarm chemistry that we make includes cortisol, noradrenaline, adrenaline, so that when our body sees a threat, whether that threat is real or not, and that's the challenge because it's how our body is perceiving the threat, is that this alarm chemistry is going to go out. So you can imagine with persistent pain, your body is feeling a constant threat because that alarm is on 24-7. And there's a lot of uncertainty and unpredictability, as you know. I don't need to tell you, uh, individuals who live with persistent pain, that there is a lot of uncertainty and unpredictability to your pain flare-ups. The body is in this hypervigilant, hyper-alert state. And what that starts to do is it starts to deplete that, uh, that alarm chemistry. And so that makes us develop more fatigue, more susceptibility to infections. We don't have that, that firewall that people who manage their uh, stress or manage their, their wellness in a way that they're able to control pain flare-ups and things like that. People with chronic pain have a real challenge controlling those. So they don't have that same protective firewall that other people have. So it's an important distinction to make. 
how we deal with this is that we need to be able to develop some resiliency and to fill up those tanks. So filling up those adrenals with the stress chemistry that we need requires us to manage the threat or the unpredictability and the stress in a better way. Obviously, this podcast is not going to dive into all the different ways you can approach this. But I think one of the most important tools that we have available to us is our breathing. So breathing is by far the most powerful, powerful tool we have to bring our body to calm. So that mindful breathing or that breathing that involves coming to that place of calm requires a lot of practice. It's not something that we uh, intuitively understand or know how to use. And it, and I'm, I'm coming from that from an experience. So a lot of times we just get through our days. We're just trying to function. And uh, we're sort of in this, this uh, reactive kind of mode. And to become more focused and more mindful to our day requires a lot of practice. So the fastest way to that place is through our breath. And um, I know myself personally, when I tried to work on mindful breathing, it was really difficult. I linked into a YouTube video called One Moment Meditation, and I highly recommend that uh, everyone have a look at that. And what uh, the YouTube video did is it really helped you practice breathing for a minute. And what it was trying to promote is that you want to practice this skill because when you want to call on it, you're going to be able to call on it without having to, to react too much. But even a minute of practice can be very difficult. So what I would recommend is finding a, an amount of time that you can do. So a number amount of time that you can focus in on practicing that breathing. And there's different ways to do this. But on average, for me, my brain can stay focused for maybe about 15 seconds. And then I'm going to build more time uh, if I'm able to do that 15 seconds two or three times a day. If we look at what the military does around uh, mindful breathing is they use something called tactical breathing. And tactical breathing is the same concept as you see with box breathing. So if you can visualize a box with four sides, is that when you're breathing in one side of the box, it's breathing in one, two, three, four, one side of the box, then you're breathing out, it's another side of the box, so that two breaths actually will give you a complete box. And so if you can, even if you're not using 10 seconds, maybe you could do three boxes, you know, three or four times a day. And what you start to find is that your body feels differently through the day. It's not a eureka moment. It's not all of a sudden everything changes. But you start to feel that the chemistry in your body is a bit different. So it's really uh, requires a lot of practice, but it can be so beneficial if you're able to uh, to master that. And what you're actually doing is building resiliency within yourself. So rather than have a situation where we completely shut down into a fetal position, go down that rabbit hole, thinking about what if, what if, all the horrible things that can happen with this infection that we're seeing on, on the media, we actually pull ourselves away from that and look at, our, look at our surroundings, look at how we're doing, and uh, develop some skills that can help us uh, better manage and replenish our tanks around our stress response. The other thing that I want you to tell is that you need to give yourself a ton of slack 
and to practice self-compassion. So imagine if you had a good friend who was having a difficult time struggling with what's going on with COVID. How would you help that friend through that difficult time? So if they called you out uh, on a phone and just needed to talk, what kinds of things would you be saying to your friend? And I would tell you that you probably wouldn't be saying to your friend, suck it up. You would be saying to your friend is that we're going to be okay. Look at all the things that are happening in our life, all the positive things. Look at the things that we have to be grateful for. And there will be an end to this. We will find a vaccine. There will be a point in our life where we'll come back to some normality, although this event has been so life-changing that our normal may not be the same normal. So there is a certain amount of mourning around that. I just wanted to talk about that because I know that came up in the last podcast. Um, I also want to encourage people to make sure they're reaching out if they feel that they're not managing this well. There are 1-800 numbers and uh, throughout the province of Nova Scotia, I'm sure this is the same throughout the country, where if you're uh, having a difficult time managing the stress and the strain related to uh, COVID-19 and the isolation as well, um, there are numbers that you can reach out to uh, to have someone call you back and to have that conversation. Okay, so let's get into some of the facts that we're going to talk about in this week's uh, podcast around COVID-19. So we know that this pandemic was declared on March the 11th. um, And we knew that it was actually um, starting to build up steam uh, where it originated, which was in Wuhan, China. So pandemics, by definition, occur when a new disease starts to spread globally, for which nobody has any immunity. So this is a new condition, a new virus or bacteria that we have no immunity. So what pandemics do is once once they are uh, identified, is they trigger a more aggressive public health response. So, and that's, uh, I think the World Health Organization kind of took some time to say, okay, pandemic or not, but once it did, then that really created a situation where communities and where governments could actually start to put in some very um, incredible uh, restrictions on how people could move. So a few facts about the coronavirus. So COVID is a coronavirus. So coronaviruses are a large family of viruses. You know, we think about the co- about colds. It is a zoonotic uh, uh, coronavirus. Uh, sorry, uh, it is a zoonotic virus, which means that they originally pass from animals to animals, but then they go from animals to human. And where they become uh, incredibly more challenging is when they actually uh, pass directly from human to human. So novel coronavirus 19 um, passed directly from humans to humans, and it was first identified in Wuhan, China. So they can range. So coronaviruses are often seen in that viruses that cause colds, right? So when we think about colds, so but they can range of illness, very, very large range from that common cold to more severe diseases. And for most of us that have worked in healthcare, as we'll all remember the SARS epidemic that happened and how that impacted healthcare providers in Ontario. It did not spread to all of our communities because it was contained very quickly. So SARS, MERS are all COVID viruses. Uh, SARS occurred in 2003. MERS occurred just recently, actually, but they were all contained. They were not considered a pandemic at that time, um, but um, they uh, did 
uh, create a huge amount of anxiety. And there's been a lot of prediction around the fact that we would have a pandemic, uh, even though we made such huge advances in infectious diseases. I mean, I can remember when I was a, um, a nurse in the 1970s, I mean, it was nothing to see, you know, 40, 50 kids admitted to pediatrics with infectious diseases. And then when the uh, Prevnar vaccine and the Haemophilus vaccine came in, it's very rare to see kids get admitted with serious illnesses to hospitals now. So vaccines have really, are probably one of the most ineffective, most effective, inexpensive tools that we can use to manage uh, public health illness. So vaccines are just incredibly important. And I've seen how they've impacted um, how they've impacted healthcare uh, in general and how it, and specifically in children, how it's impacted children. So the coronaviruses are related to each other genetically, but they are very distinct when they do present. So they're quite different in, their, in the, how many people or the risk of mortality, as well as how much they are contagious. There is a belief that most of these coronaviruses, although it's not conclusive, they are, have originated from bats. So they've gone from bats to humans. There's still lots of work and there's still the books that need to be written on this. Uh, the COVID-19 uh, is a very contagious vaccine and that's been shown over and over again. As mentioned, it did start in Wuhan, China. Um, there is some interesting data though that it may have made its way to North America from Europe and not Asia. Um, and as many of us remember, is that when this was happening in China, China suppressed the information. So there wasn't this kind of global response that we needed. Um, and uh, we think that there was some information that was withheld. So there wasn't that kind of response that we saw with SARS and MERS that we needed. There are other facts that played into it. And I think the, that globally, the world has relied so much on the United States and the incredible uh, expertise and scientists that are just dedicated to this kind of work. And there had been some dismantling around that. And I think this was another factor that played into this. So it's often called the novel co coronavirus. Novel just means new virus. Uh, primarily what it does, it causes a respiratory illness, like similar to what we would see with other types of, of uh, upper respiratory tract infections. There can be cough and fever, but in more severe cases, there can be difficulty with breathing. So what's really interesting about some of the data that's come out right now about coronavirus is that people that are most at risk... Uh, from dying of this illness are people that have cardiovascular disease. Now, we would think that it would be respiratory disease, but it's actually cardiovascular disease. So there is something about our vasculature that is really important with this infection. So whether we'll find that it may be contributing to a vasculitis, we know it affects the muscle of the heart as well, but there seems to, and especially if we pull in diabetes, which is, another, which is probably the second highest... Um, predictor of mortality is if somebody lives with diabetes. And diabetes, as most of us know, even though we think about it as an endocrine pathology, it really does impact uh, vasculature. And it, it affects uh, microvasculature as well as microvasculature. So there's something about the vasculature in individuals who uh, live with diabetes. And the third risk factor is respiratory illness. 
other people that are at risk of dying of this illness are actually individuals who have significant frailty. And frailty is a clinical diagnosis. This is the amazing work that has been done by Dr. Um, Ken Rockwood out of Dalhousie University. And so there are tools that we can use to detect uh, or that we can ascertain whether or not someone has significant frailty. And frailty is a predictor. You know, I always get, I, I cringe at the fact because my, my, um, my background is emergency, but I also have a palliative care hat. When I hear people comment that physicians um, are making decisions around life and death, and I need to come back to this because it's not physicians and nurses or paramedics that are making decisions around life or death. It is COVID-19 that is making the decision. Physicians and paramedics and nurses are really trying to respond to this illness. There is, however, individuals that would not benefit from being put on a breathing tube, and these are individuals with significant uh, frailty primarily. So the decision-making we're doing around whether it's it's of benefit uh, to put somebody on a breathing tube is really around their frailty. Because if you put somebody on a breathing tube has significant frailty, you can actually contribute to their suffering. So what we encourage is that those decisions around allowing natural death are made prior to somebody developing that COVID infection. But you can be guaranteed that every healthcare provider is trying to save every life. Um, but we also do not want to contribute to uh, individual suffering. So not only do we have a robust uh, front-end response in terms of how we are doing resuscitations, we also have a very robust uh, response to how we're managing patients who are not going to survive this infection, but we don't want to see them suffer. We want to be able to use the pharmacology and an approach that is going to help to uh, minimize suffering. One of the most tragic aspects of this infection is the social isolation that we talked about. So when someone develops COVID infection um, or a life-threatening complication of that infection, the normal way we would respond as healthcare providers is we would have the family at that bedside. And what COVID has done is it, pre is it prevented us from doing that. So we have to find other ways of connecting families. So it is probably the hardest thing for us as healthcare providers is to move away from that. Because not only do we sometimes not have the ability to change an outcome around resuscitation, but it's how we define it for the families as well as for ourselves. So where I see most of the, the, the suffering for healthcare providers as well will be in how these deaths are defined at the end. So how we are able to work through that and support each other is gonna be so important. Anyway, coming back to how you can uh, prevent uh, COVID-19. So the big thing is that physical distancing. Uh, you want to wash your hands frequently and avoid touching your face, which is really hard. Just kind of keep that uh, awareness there and just see how long it takes you before you start touching your glasses or scratching your nose. You also want to avoid close contact, as we've been talking about. That's that social or the physical distancing. So what they're recommending is at least six feet or two meters. So it's spread uh, primarily, and this is information that's coming from the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S., is it's mostly commonly spread by coughing or sneezing, but we also know it can be spread by talking. Hence, we've seen this, this debate back and forth about who wears a mask, who doesn't wear a mask. And what they're recommending is that 
yes, somebody who has the infection wears the mask, but also if you're going out into public and interacting with individuals, you should wear a mask as well, just in case you are in that population, which is what we call an asymptomatic carrier. So you're somebody that's gotten the infection, had zero symptoms, and um, you are still spreading the virus. So wearing masks is, is uh, considered now to be both for the patient with COVID, but also you as an individual that are asymptomatic to protect other people in case you are an asymptomatic carrier. So we want to avoid close contacts such as shaking hands. And I don't know if anyone has heard the conversation by Dr. Fauci, who is the head of the NIH is that we may start looking at shaking hands very differently as we move forward. I always think about the uh, Middle Eastern populations as well, as well as Europeans, who often greet by kissing on each other on the cheek. I mean, we, that those particular habits and behaviors may be changed as well. So if we cough in our hand um, or sneeze um, or and touch an object or surface with a virus on it, and then touch our mouth or eyes or nose, then we can actually get the infection. In fact, what's really interesting, the very first case of COVID that was reported was actually an ophthalmologist who uh, obtained the infection through his eyes. So that's why you're off seeing these, uh, these facial shields that cover the eyes as well, or the goggles. Um, unfortunately, this ophthalmologist later died from the infection. He was only young. He was in his 30s. So the, the big thing that we want to worry about is the severe infections. Now, 80% of patients are going to get better. Uh, so that's the majority of population. There are some that will get a much more severe illness that can be managed just with oxygen. Um, but there are some that will require uh, airway uh, intervention and to be put on a breathing tube. The other piece of this, and this comes back to COVID deciding who lives or dies, is for whatever reason, this infection, as with all other infections, can go on to cause damage to other organs, not just uh, the heart and the lungs. It can also damage the kidneys and contribute to a condition called severe acute respiratory syndrome. Uh, and this often will result, uh, once we start to see multi-organ failure, can result in death. But this is very, very um, uh, uncommon, even though that's what we hear about mostly through the, the, uh, the media. Um, the only way to confirm this infection is with a lab test. And I know for our facility that it has not been difficult to getting uh, the lab test done. Uh, the uh, public health officials have been sort of controlling who gets it, who doesn't initially, but now it's all comers. I think what they're looking for now is how much is in the community. So they're looking for community spread. So if you do test positive for COVID-19, you need to be quarantined. Um, and uh, so that's really on you. It's very important, but some governments are going to extremes to, you know, find people or also even to uh, certify people and limit their movement. So being uh, that distance, that physical distancing is really important. So you want to interact with as few people as possible. Um, this is why they start cl closing schools. We didn't want kids in school. You see the sporting events. I think most of us felt okay when they started closing these major basketball tournaments that this was really serious. And I, I must say, it's probably one of the hardest things that my husband's been able, uh, my husband has found getting used to is not being able to watch sport that's happening that you don't know, already know the result of. So all of these uh, other uh, sporting events that are, have already happened in the past just doesn't kind of do it for people that love watching sports.
So other questions that have come up, can the virus live on surfaces outside the body? And, and the question is, the answer is it really depends. It depends on the type of surface. So what we know is that surfaces like paper or cardboard boxes is that this, the, uh, the virus does not live long on those uh, surfaces, but it does live longer on surfaces like metal um, that are more solid. Um, so this is why it's so important that these surfaces are cleaned and why you want to wash your hands. Uh, all of those kinds of things. And we did answer the question about the mask. Uh, we want to make sure that the masks that you're using in the community um, are not the N95 masks. They should be uh, kept for healthcare providers. I saw a really interesting podcast, and there's an, or sorry, um, YouTube video. There's so much out there now how to do your own mask. But I remember listening to, uh, I think it was Dr., I don't know who it was actually, but uh, you could actually, the Scotty's paper, if you had a, a cloth mask, and then put a piece of Scotty paper in between and had a little bit of a, the cloth would come up and, and Velcro down, that that almost would behave like an N95. And the beauty of that is you could bring the Velcro part down and then you could remove that uh, little piece of Scotty paper. Uh, that's the, um, oh my goodness, the the ones that you can rip off to kind of wash your, or to, to dry your, clean up messes that are on counters. Uh, that it would be, that that can be replaced, so and then the mask can be washed. So um, I thought that was kind of interesting, and it's something that's very doable. The other thing that I'm just going to mention is around the treatment of this infection, and I think what makes it so dangerous is that we don't have any treatment, but there's a whole pile of work that's being done. And uh, so people that have gotten the infection using their antibodies, um, there is a lot of debate around some of the pharmacology that's out there, but we don't have the science yet that can direct that. And that is being limited because we need to remind ourselves that we don't want people dying of the medication. Um, so it needs to be very specific and the science needs to be there for us to use these medications. Uh, most people get better. Uh, without the medication. And the last thing you want to do is have someone die because of the medication, as was mentioned. All right, so we're going to end there, but I just want to leave you with a few things. I know we talked about a lot of things uh, during the podcast, uh, but and this stuff is changing on a daily basis. I get notices every day. So I want people to feel to know that they need to be hopeful, that there are very, very smart people who have our back. Uh, we have some incredible... Uh, expertise and scientists that are out there studying this uh, this coronavirus. We're starting to understand the huge global response around the development of a vaccine. And the vaccine is the, what's going to make the difference. We are going to have to be very careful until this vaccine is developed, even when the infective rate in our community starts to go down. So our lives will be different until the vaccine comes out. And that's probably looking at 12 to 18 months. This virus uh, will be contained and we will get that vaccine. Um, so we need to be very patient. We need to practice self-compassion every day. Um, find things that are gonna help lift you up. Music is a beautiful thing, and you see all these different concerts that are coming online. Um, focus in on things that are more hopeful. So finding TED Talks, for example, that talk about how to build resiliency how to recognize when you're in that catastrophizing mode or at that mode that is just seeing nothing but bleak. We have the power to shift our thinking. So it's important to tap into that power. That's where our choice is. We can't, we can't control this virus, but we can choose how we respond to it. So please stay safe. Uh, remember that uh, physical distancing and that social connection, we are all designed for connection and for movement. So start with something simple. Make a commitment to yourself every morning 
to uh, accomplish something. It can. It doesn't have to be something big. It can be small. 10 minutes, or sorry, 10 seconds a day of practicing that mindful breathing, finding a simple uh, program that you can use for mo- moving, uh, you know, chair yoga, anything like that. So we'll end it there. So be uh, safe, my friends, and uh, hopefully we'll hear from you soon. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.